Well, I'd like to ask your indulgence for a moment for you to picture in your mind a pink elephant. It might help to close your eyes so you can more clearly see it. I'd like you to make it a large pink elephant, one that fills all of your vision with four massive pink legs. Be sure and picture that large pink trunk reaching out to grab peanuts from your hand. And, and two huge ears, giant, pink, floppy, flapping folds of furrowed skin. It's a beautiful pink elephant. I hope that you can see it in your mind, an extraordinary pink elephant. And, of course, it has a tail, a pink serpent swishing and swatting back and forth. And that massive billboard body, wide, tall, leathery, pink. You got it? You got a pink elephant in your mind? Um, hopefully the kids are closing their eyes. None of the adults are. They're afraid I'm going to do something weird to them. <laughs> now suppose I ask you to remove from your mind the pink elephants. Do not imagine any more pink elephants. Do not picture a pink elephant on the billboard of your mind. See no pink elephant, hear no pink elephant, speak no pink elephant. As far as you're concerned, pink elephants cannot exist even in the imagination, banish forever all thoughts of pink elephants from your brain. Now, some of you know the trick. Thoughts cannot be removed from your mind by thinking about them leaving. The mind does not have an off button. The only way to remove the image of the pink elephant is to replace it with another. To clear away a pink elephant requires a green donkey or a yellow buffalo or a handsome pastor. <laughs> it requires a more powerful and expulsive image. Now, the technique is useful for more than extermination of pink elephants. This very topic came up in our session meeting this week. Not pink elephants, but, <laughs> but expelling negative, dangerous thoughts as we discuss the spiritual challenges of a church and how as elders to build up the spiritual life of a congregation. And I'm sure Pastor Kaiser has seen this as well as I have in counseling. It goes something like this. The godly wife longs to love her husband. But he has many failings and flaws, right? So she dedicates hours and effort to prayer and meditation with this thought foremost. My husband is not selfish and inconsiderate. My husband is not selfish and inconsiderate. My husband is not selfish and inconsiderate. And over and again the mantra is repeated, but it's a vain antidote to the attitude which poisons their relationship. My husband is not selfish and inconsiderate. And then he leaves his socks in the middle of the floor. And the mind has a vivid image that it has thought about and meditated upon for hours. See? Selfish and inconsiderate. The more we dwell on the negative, even hoping to expel such thoughts, 
we often will find the image deeper ingrained in our thinking. Paul taught you this. Listen to what he said again in Philippians 4.8. Here's what Paul wants you to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Now, we would not want to say that the Apostle Paul and the preacher Robert Schuller had every bit of theology in common. But I tell you, Paul believed in the power of positive thinking. Think about these things. Work your mind around what is good. Surely I'm not the only parent who's made this terrible blunder, sitting in the chair, thinking to yourself, I will not fuss and be ill-tempered with my kids today. I will not fuss and be ill-tempered with my kids today. I will not fuss and be ill-tempered with my kids today. Daddy, can I have a cookie? Why don't you just, can't you see I'm working on my bad attitude? <laughs> Down we spiral. We've been meditating on our pink elephants in the hopes of no longer seeing them. What we need is not more focus on the negative. We need a different image to place in our minds. In the 1800s, Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor, preached a sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. A stunning paragraph from his sermon I'd like to read to you this morning. He said, There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. He was preaching on the text that said, you shall not love the world, for if the love of the world is in you, then the love of God cannot be. So he's asking the congregation, how are we going to get rid of that love of the world? There are two ways to displace this love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon, simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it. In other words, tell yourself over and over, the world is not worthy of it. It's not worthy of my attention. It's not worthy of my attention. Or the alternative is to set forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon, not to resign an old affection with nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. The former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. The latter alone will suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. I needed this teaching this very week. Our neighbor, he's not just a person that does not attend dominion. It's not just that he's not in a PCA church. It's not just that he doesn't go to an evangelical church. It's not even that he's Roman Catholic. He doesn't darken the door of the church. He is as unchurched as you can possibly get. 
and he put his house on for sale on the market two days before we put our house, and he was asking $20,000 too much. The real estate agent said, he's never going to sell that house. I said, you're right. He ain't going to sell it. He would pay it anyway. <laughs> he already has a contract. Man, I envied the wicked. Just like Psalm 73 said, their wallets are fat. Their bodies are sleek. But then I knew that was wrong. So I dutifully began to combat the sin. I will not envy my neighbor's success. I will not envy my neighbor's success. I will not envy my neighbor's success. And by the time I was done with my incredible spiritual exercises, not only was I filled with all kinds of envy, but given the chance, I might have murdered the man. (laughs) And some of you wives know what I mean when you think about your husbands. Now, we must know the law. We have to know the law. We have to know what it tells us. We have to know its convicting power. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. But if you live, this is important, if you live in the you shall not of the law, you will not find freedom from sin's tyranny. Only the expulsive power of a new affection offers freedom. I must show my soul a greater good, a a grander glory, a more gripping grace. And David found just such a vision in the Bible. The word cut him to the heart. And when it did so, it revealed that he was far worse than he had ever dared imagine. But the word did more than that, because at the same time it cut, It also cleansed, for there he met a redeemer who loved him far more than he had ever dared hope. He thought he was pretty good, and so he did not need a very great and gracious redeemer. When the word came and showed him he was very bad, it exalted the work of God. Now, how will we respond to those twin truths? How will you respond When the Bible says to you, you are more evil than you would have ever dared imagine. And at the same time, you are more loved than you could have ever dared hope. Today we're going to, as it were, listen in to David's prayer in response to the two previous sermons he has heard. Remember, two weeks ago, for those who were here, we looked at the first six verses in Psalm 19, and we heard the sermon written in the stars. Remember, David heard it first while spending a night in rapturous meditation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then as the sun rose and the sweat began to form on his brow, he realized that the sun and this heaven preached this message so that everyone hears it. Everyone is exposed to the sermon that proclaims the glory of God because none can escape its heat. That was the first sermon. Now, he knows there is a God. He knows there is a God who made the heavens and the earth, but he knows nothing about him, does not know his name, does not know what he requires. So he opens the Bible in verse 7. He 
turns to the Scriptures and hears a second sermon in verses 7 to 11, what we considered last week. There, he experienced God's sharp and effective sword, and it sliced him open. It sliced him open and exposed the very attitudes and intentions that are buried within his heart. And it was not pretty. But rather than spiral down by meditating on the badness, rather than spiral down into a sense of darkness and despair, David, when the Word revealed what was going on, David turned to the light and said, God, will you not deliver me from sin's stranglehold? David pleads for help, for God's help, because he sees in the Word the depth of his sin And he knows that only God can rescue him. Far more evil than he would have ever dared imagine. But he finds a redeemer who loves him far more than he could have ever dared hope. So from David's prayer, I'd like to ask you to notice first that we must have the expulsive power of God because of the extent of sin. Look at verse 12 again. And notice the extent of sin. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Now, when David opened up the Bible, as he did in verses 7 to 11, and studied the Scriptures, he found that sin is not... Now, this, is gonna, this may be hard for some of you. This may be a new idea. Sin is not primarily the bad actions that we do. Sin is not primarily, fundamentally, the bad acts that we do. Sin is more deep than that. It's more fundamental than that. It's more associated with our very character and nature. Sin is a condition of the heart. It is the bending of our motives and our desires to what is selfish and self-centered in our attitudes and our actions. So sin is primarily that condition of the heart which bends us away from God. As Paul would later discover, David now knows that self-righteousness arises in the heart because It does not know the law. It does not know the breadth and the width and the depth of the law of God. And David now finds that out and finds his problem is much deeper than he would have ever thought. Who could even understand his errors, God? Cleanse me from my secret faults. God, I do not know all the bad things that are in there. Will you forgive? what is hidden within. In the uh, 1200s, the Roman church got together in the Fourth Lateran Council, and they issued this canon, Canon 21. They said, All the faithful of both sexes shall, after they have reached the age of discretion, and listen to this part, faithfully confess all their sins at least once a year, to their own priest 
and performed the best of their ability, the penance imposed, receiving reverently, at least at Easter, the sacrament of the Eucharist. Otherwise, they shall be cut off from the church during life and deprived of Christian burial in death. The Roman church declared that everyone must confess every single sin at least once a year. Now, I would have to say that the Pope is very foolish to suppose that we could even list all of our sins like we list our groceries to be purchased. Much more faithful to the Scriptures is the teaching of John Calvin. Listen to what he wrote. And I believe this quote is on your handout. He said, Even the saints, even the holy people, by strictly examining themselves, can scarcely come to the knowledge of a hundredth, one out of one hundred parts of their sins. And therefore they must with one voice unite with David in saying, Who can understand his errors? Charles Spurgeon agrees, the famous Baptist pastor of London in the 1800s. Preaching on Psalm 19 and referencing again the Lateran Council's canon, Spurgeon said, If we could receive pardon for all our sins just by telling every sin we have committed in one hour, there is not one of us who would be able to enter heaven. Since, besides the sins that are known to us and that we may be able to confess, there are a vast mass of sins which are as truly sins as those which we do not which we do observe but which are secret and come not beneath our eyes oh if we had eyes like those of god we would think differently of ourselves the sins we see and confess are but like the farmer's small samples which he brings to market when he has left his granary full at home i doubt not It is true of all of us who are here that in every hour of our existence in which we are active, we commit tens of thousands of unholinesses for which which conscience has never reproved us because we have never seen them to be wrong, seeing we have not studied God's laws as we ought to have done. I can assure you I've preached a hundred sermons vainly imagining that I do so for the glory of God. But I tell you, one week comes and I see your frowning faces and and your drooping eyes and hear the snore all the way up here and I realize my failure to please you and I find my heart desires to see itself honored in all I do. The great hero Hercules offended the goddess Hera and she put a spell on him, and in a fit of madness, Hercules killed his own children. To atone for his sins, he was assigned 12 labors, one of which was to kill the Hydra. The Hydra was a nine-headed sea monster, and Hercules went and lured it out of its den and grabbed it, thought he would choke it to death. But the monster was not easily overcome. It wound its coils around Hercules' foot, and Hercules could not escape, and so he took his club and began whacking off the heads. The problem was, every time he knocked a head off the hydra, two more grew back. (laughs) Thomas Adams, a Puritan pastor, in preaching on Psalm 19, referenced that myth in his sermon. He said, The hairs of a man's head may be told, 
but no arithmetic can number our sins. Before we count a thousand, we commit ten thousand more. And so we rather multiply by addition than divide by subtraction. There is no possibility of numeration like Hydra's head. While we are cutting off 20 by confession, we find a hundred more grown up. I think here is one of the most telling differences between the Pharisee, between the person who is pretending to be religious and the true believer. How do you hear God's condemning of unknown sins, of your Hidden faults. See, those who make a show of religion, those who say, yes, I want to be a religious person. I want to be good. They make a pretense of faith, but do not desire the reality. Those respond poorly when God puts his holy finger on the hidden sins and motives of the heart. Oh, yes. They may admit a lack of perfection. Oh, yeah, I lost my temper and cursed somebody while driving down the street the other day. I I do not pray as much as I should. I ought to give more to the church. But hidden sins are never considered and certainly never concerned over. The true Christian, however, recognizes that a secret sin in my heart today will become a flagrant rebellion in my life tomorrow. A secret sin held in the heart today like Jack's bean will sprout a stalk to reach all the way to hell tomorrow. Today it is a tiny coral. Tomorrow a dangerous reef Yes, the pebble may be small and unseen, but when it sits in the bottom of your shoe, it will give a limp to your whole journey. The true Christian prays with David for God's expulsive power to extend to even the hidden areas of his heart. Then second, first we must have the expulsive power of God because of the extent of sin. It just goes everywhere. It just messes up everything. But then second, we must have the expulsive power of God because of the power of sin. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Note carefully what David says. Let them not have dominion over me. Let them not rule me. Let them not control me. David recognizes, having studied the word in verses 7 to 11, that sin has a power beyond his own ability to resist or defeat. Unless another give help, all will be lost. It's like a wild stallion is the heart's lust for sin. It is straining at the bit. It is pawing at the ground. It is eager to rush headlong over the cliff to destruction. Listen to John Calvin again. 
being regenerated by the Spirit of God, David groaned, it is true, under the burden of his sins. But he knew, on the other hand, how great is the rebellion of the flesh and how much we are inclined to forgetfulness of God. Let us learn to walk in fear and trembling, even though the unruliness of our wayward flesh has already been subdued by turning to Christ. For unless God restrain us, our hearts will violently boil with a proud and insolent contempt of God. By asking that sin might not have dominion, David expressly declares that unless God assists him, he will be unable to resist and will be wholly brought under the rule of the worst vices. No doubt David could have wished to feel in his heart no stirrings of corruption. But knowing that he would never be wholly free from the remains of sin until at death he had put off this corrupt nature, he prays to be armed with the grace of the Holy Spirit for the combat that iniquity might not reign victorious over him. Friends, here again shines the difference between true religion and pretense. The regenerate woman delights to be held back from sin and prays frequently and passionately for this expulsive power. On the contrary, those who are outwardly religious consider it a curse to be restrained from sin. So when sin reaches out its hand to grab the false disciple, she will reach forth her hand to meet it. But when the true Christian, when the true follower of Christ sees that sin reaching out to grab her, she reaches her hand up to heaven to call down grace and help in time of need. See, the Christian woman wants a heart more tamed by God's power. But the pretender finds the bit and bridle to be a vexation. Now, four applications to make here in verse 13. First, I would ask you to note that this is the prayer of the great Saint David, the man after God's own heart. Because we are often unaware of the true power of sin, we may not easily believe that David would need to ask such a thing. But all alike may sin presumptuously. And all alike must ask for help. Listen to Spurgeon again. The highest saint may sin the lowest sin unless he is upheld by divine grace. When we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. Will you humble yourself and ask for God's help? Then second, application. I would ask you to observe God desires to help. 
David says at the end of verse 13, if God does something, if he keeps me back, if he protects me from these presumptuous sins so they do not have dominion over me, then I will be blameless, I will be innocent of great transgression. When God works, David is kept from these sins. And God is eager to tame the wild heart. Will you humble yourself and ask for help? Then third application. I would plead with you to believe that you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. God's mercies are brand new this morning. Yes, it is true. Some of us here are so black, so vile, so ugly, so terrible that we assume that any hope of victory must surely need to be abandoned. Pastor Tony Felice at Presbytery, when he was preaching this weekend, made a great application. He said, when I was young in the faith and in the ministry, and I read where Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. I thought to myself, this does not make any sense. But as I have grown in my understanding of the faith, it makes much sense. Except I would say this to Paul. Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Because once you understand your own heart, the only thought that can be in your mind is surely no one is as vile as I. But even then, know this. We've already read it in the worship service. God's hand is not shortened. We are not asking. Christ is not asking you to reach up your hand to heaven and pull Christ down. He is telling you that Christ has come down. God has reached down into the very depths of the mud and despair to raise up the most desperately guilty. Will you humble yourself and ask for help? And then fourth thing by way of application. The first application is note that this is David, the man's after God's own heart. Everyone must ask for help with even presumptuous sins. Second, observe God's desire to help. He is eager to tame the wild at heart. Third, believe you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. His arm is not shortened. He can save. But then fourth, remember the question is not, will you sin? That's not the question. The question is, will you ask for help? Recently, a preacher I heard, and and I do not remember where I heard it or read it, but he observed that an atheist criticized his faith by saying, oh, Christianity is just a crutch. And his response was different maybe than what you expected. He said this, yes, it is. I am lame and broken and I need a crutch. Will you humble yourself and admit that you too need the crutch of God's grace to expel the power of sin? And then third, we must have the expulsive power of God. First, because of the extent of sin. It's just everywhere. Then second, because of the power of sin. We have no ability within ourselves to overcome it. Then third, we must have the expulsive power of God because of the defilement of sin. Not only is it everywhere, but it messes up everything. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength 
and my Redeemer. Now in verse 13, it seems that David is focused on victory over these great and outward transgressions, these presumptuous sins. But having asked for God's help on that, he now looks again inside and says, I need help with the words of my mouth and even the very meditations of my heart. He recognizes how difficult it is to bridle the words and thoughts so that nothing passes from the heart and through the mouth which is contrary to the will of God. And yet, as difficult as it is, is that not the purity which is required by the law of God? And is it not the purity which delights your souls? And see, that's precisely the problem, isn't it? Sin defiles everything. It's not simply that sin is these big outward transgressions, that if I were sat in a chair and taped to it with lots of duct tape, that maybe then I would not sin. People have thought that throughout church history. The monks in the 3rd and 4th century, they had a movement where they would go and they would build giant columns in the middle of the desert and they would spend their life sitting on columns so that none of you sinners could mess me up. And there they found the words of their mouth and the meditation of their hearts were unacceptable to God. See, the They needed not only to be cleansed from outward actions, but from inward contamination. David has studied his Bible, and he knows how desperate is his need. The inner heart, the the very thoughts that go on in his mind when the lights are out and he is in bed alone are defiled. And yet he desires that they be acceptable to God. That's the worthy passion. I want them to be, but they're not. What will bridge the gap? And the end of verse 14 tells you, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Martin Luther read the um, Canon 21 of the Lateran Council, and he knew that the Roman Catholic Church promised him he could have forgiveness of sin if he would just confess every sin that he had ever committed. But when he tried to do so, he found that he either had to lower the bar, lower the standard of the law, or he had to just give up in despair. The the film on Luther portrays beautifully his torment by the extent of sin, this power that sin had, and the fact that it defiled even his thoughts until he met Christ, his Redeemer. In Jesus, he found one who had perfectly obeyed this very law, which now threatened to condemn him. Christ did what none other can do. He did it all. He kept the law, and he offers to pay Martin Luther's penalty. And even now, Christ is standing beside the Father. And this prayer right here, that threatens to drive you to despair when you pray it, Christ is praying for you. You need not pray it perfectly. You need not say, God, I have to be perfectly pure in my desire to keep back from sin. Christ prays for you. Hebrews reminds you, He intercedes for you even now at the right hand of the Father. He is praying this sin so that you 
might see the restraining hand of God come into your life. How will you respond to Psalm 19? An orphan boy was living with his grandmother when their house caught caught fire. The grandmother tried to get upstairs to rescue the boy, but she died in the flames. The boy's cries for help were answered by a man who climbed up an iron drain pipe on the outside of the building and then into the room and came back down with the boy with his arms wrapped tightly around the neck. Several, years, uh, several weeks later, a public hearing was held in the small town to determine who would receive custody of the child. He was orphaned. The grandmother was now dead. A farmer, a teacher, and the town's wealthiest citizen all came and gave reasons why they felt they should be chosen to give the boy a new home. But as they talked, the lad just sat there staring at the floor, making no response. Then a stranger walked into the room, walked up to the front, took his hands out of his pocket, and showed scars on them. Because when he had climbed up the metal drain pipe, it had been heated from the fire in the building, and his hands had been burned. The crowd gasped. The boy cried out in recognition. This was the one who had saved his life. He jumped from his seat, threw his arms around the man's neck, and held on for dear life. And the, other, the others who would have claim or pretend to have claim to be the boy's new father walked away and left the boy and his rescuer alone. The scarred hands settled the case. Your Redeemer stands with scarred hands offering you expulsive power that you long for. If you belong to Christ, then you have His Spirit and you want to be freed from hidden sin. You want victory over the power of sin. You want even the words that come out of your mouth Yea, even the very thoughts that roll around in your head at night to be pure. You want that. Christ stands with with scarred hands ready to give it. Will you ask for help? Some of you today, maybe at the very beginning of a possibility of a journey with Christ, You must ask Him to be your Redeemer. David found Him as His strength and Redeemer. You must ask Him to save you, to come into your life, to free you from the condemnation which is due your heart's condition and to provide for you an eternal and safe freedom from sin. But for others of us here today, what we need to do is hear again The call of Christ, the call of your Redeemer, who is saying, I want to renew my covenant with you. I want to cleanse you from your past guilt, and I want to give you the power for a holy life tomorrow. Will you ask of the Lord your strength, the only Redeemer?